Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Welcome to the Low Level Hell Podcast. I'm your host, Brian. With me, as always, is Kelly of the River. How are you, sir? Good, sir. How are you? I'm fantastic. You having a good Excellent. Saturday? Yeah, it's been uh, it's been actually really good. We had a little cool front come through down here in South Texas, so it's uh, lightened the load a little bit on the humidity. Um, yeah, it's good. I don't know how long it'll last, but uh, typically we have you know something pushed through, and it's you know it'll get down into the 70s, you know, or maybe 60s. Yeah. Uh, the next day, it's like 80 something. So. Um, but yeah. it's it's nice to have a little break and wear a hoodie for once. Yeah, well, that's good. You've given me my uh, outlook for the next two days then. I'm expecting a cold front now, so that'll be good. Nice. Um, yeah, so uh, I think we'll jump right into this. We've been talking a little bit, since really since the beginning of this, and I think it's probably a good time just to address it for, for all the listeners regarding the format for the show. So we've, we've kind of gone back and forth about you know, what is the overall goal, what is the audience, things of that nature. So... Let's talk a little bit about the format. What we've decided is Low Level Hell Podcast, this podcast right now, every two weeks, we are going to discuss aviation, real aviation, uh, mostly military, but I think we could probably delve into general aviation as well, um, but with a focus on you know rotary wing, air-to-ground operations, things like that. So interviews, technical discussion, uh, you name it, just kind of kind of balled up into that. But not to ignore the, the gaming side of things, because I think simulation is very important when mm-hmm. it comes to aviation. I mean, I just watched the video the other day where it was showing, um, say, A-10 pilots were training, and they were basically using DCS. Yep. Uh, like a, a militarized version, which which is kind of where DCS, from what I understand, came from. But uh, definitely want to address that. But understanding that not all military aviation enthusiasts are gamers. Um, so, you know, not like all dogs are poodles, but all poodles are dogs type thing. So <laughs> so what we'll do is, is have this show every two weeks, uh, Lord willing, and uh, technical, you know, things aside. And then we'll have what we're calling Task Force Low Level. You want to talk about that? Yeah, so the intent around uh, the Task Force Low Level podcast is more on the DCS gaming community side. So uh, the goal there is to have people that are part of our Discord and people who play on our servers uh, and people who actually, um, you know, generate uh, discussion points throughout our Discord channel. Um, bring them on to a podcast just to talk a little bit more in depth about the game, uh, their perspectives and their likes. And it's a little bit, uh, the intent is to be a little more free-flowing, not so structured. It's more like a conversation, um, probably a lot more unedited uh, versions of it. Um, But that's kind of the intent, you know, to to really bring out the 
the sim side of this community, right? So we have a lot of real military and civilian pilots. And uh, so that's great on on this podcast that uh, that's happening in the real life. But on the other side, they're also gamers for the DCS. And when I say gamers, I'm using quotation marks because DCS as a game, um, it is a game, but it is so... Um, realistic that I know there's a lot of uh, ex-military pilots who actually use it for therapy, right? Um, <laughs> just to get over some of the um, the things that they used to do and they have maybe uh, anxiety from after uh, coming out of being a fighter pilot and things like that. And it just kind of helps them through therapy. And I, I've seen some people use it for that for that reasons. And it's just to stay in touch with uh, the community. So yeah, you can't jump in your A-10 or your F-18 or your your helicopters or your, you know, your, uh, things like that. So now you get able to get into a DCS environment where it's pretty similar, uh, to that, uh, real environment. And you can play with people or fly with people, I should say that are of the same common interest on community servers that, uh, that we have. So, uh, the intent of the task force low level podcast is to bring up that environment into conversations and just really talk a little bit more in depth about the game a little more um a little more free i would say okay yeah that's great so yep every two weeks low level hell podcast and then kind of intermixed we'll have some some discussions with people in the community and, and you're right i mean there's there's a ton of great guys in the community both that have you know quote-unquote real experience and then others that don't that man they could they could fly the pants off me when it comes oh, to oh yeah sim- yeah. Those simulators, yeah they'll but, shoot um, you down in a heartbeat <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> But yeah, that's, as that's, that's pretty cool, too. I, you know, so if anybody on their community channel on Discord is interested in, you know, talking uh, with us or talking with Thread about the missions, uh, you know, things like that, you know, shoot us a text or, you know, message us and uh, we'll, we'll sign you up. We'll, we'll get you on here. Yeah, totally. It's going to be great. Uh, and then, of course, as we end these uh, shows or, or as we publish these shows, uh, you know, a few days later, we'll, we'll post them up on YouTube as well. So there's definitely plenty of ways to interact with us. Yeah, so with that being said, there, another interaction that I would like to bring up, uh, something that I, I have kind of teasing with for a while within the community, and I want to bring it up here just to start to get the word out, is, uh, what we're, is what's called Franksgiving. So uh, we won't delve too much into it today. I just kind of want to give a heads up. But December 12, uh, 2020, we're going to do a large community event, a gaming community event. It's going to be for charity. Um, and this is in memory of a, a good friend of mine, uh, Frank Bonacotti. He died December 12, uh, 2011. Uh, he served with me on multiple deployments, OH-58 Delta pilot. Uh, has unfortunately lost his life during a, a mid-air collision between his aircraft and another. And uh, his wife started a thing, uh, a charity. Um, Frank was a, a big-hearted dude, just totally, I can't express, you know, it'll sound made up if I tell you how, what a good guy this guy was. And so in his memory, she started every year doing this this charity drive. So, so we're going to do something with that. Uh, people can, can play the game, but they're going to bid on slots. And of course, highest bidder wins. We've got some great prizes lined up. In fact, today, just this morning, somebody came up and said, "Hey, I want to, I'm going to donate four DCS modules of the winner's choice." Uh, so every dollar that you put into the charity gets you a raffle ticket. And at the end, we're gonna we're gonna raffle off those prizes. I've got some others uh, lined up with some some other uh, uh, providers, content providers in the DCS world. So if you're a DCS gamer, uh, it's gonna be a great event. And if you're just a charitable person and you just want to give to something, then then give it a consider. All right, so we'll move forward. Uh, we'll talk about today's discussion. So I did this interview uh, on the side, and the timing kind of didn't work out for all of us. Uh, but but uh, I thought it'd be an interesting conversation. So I don't know if you've been keeping up with what's been going on over in uh, 
Azerbaijan, Armenia area, but you know, obviously yep. there's some, some conflict going on. But yep. uh, what's incredible is the amount of uh, unmanned aerial systems that are being used in this. Mm-hmm. And I, I've seen some numbers, and I, I think they're probably a little hokey just based on where the, the sources are coming from. But just a lot of engagements, a lot of things happening with UAS. In fact, I just read an article today talking about how uh, like seven of them were shot down in the past three days or something. So uh, point being, there's a a lot of this going on. And and as we talk about aviation enthusiasm, you know, unmanned systems are here to stay and they're only getting more prevalent. I've worked with them. You've worked with them. Mm -hmm. Um, It is not a thing that's, you know, it's going to go away anytime soon. So having an understanding of its role in the battlefield and its role, particularly in the air to ground environment, uh, I thought this was a good discussion. So uh, we'll roll into that interview and hope you enjoy it. Hey, everybody. We're here with uh, Chris Herr, who is a former Marine uh, who worked on UAS for, what would you say, 13 years? 13 years, yeah. We'll talk about sort of the evolution as you saw it with uh, with UAS, unmanned aerial systems, which used to be called unmanned aerial vehicles. And uh, But first, just tell us a little bit about yourself and, and when you joined the Marines and what that was like. Okay. Uh, yeah, I originally joined in uh, 2005, and I wanted to be an air traffic controller. Hmm. And uh, it wasn't until I completed boot camp that they told me I was going to go be a UAV operator. And, you know, in 2005, what's that? It's like a predator. I, I, I didn't know any different. Uh, so <laughs> I eventually made my way down to Florida for training. And, uh, yeah, it was not a predator. <laughs> it was much smaller. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I started out flying the RQ2 Pioneer. Uh, I was what they called an internal pilot or an IP. And, uh, they, they interchanged the pilot operator terminology. And, you know, a a lot of people have strong feelings about that. Uh, I, I don't really have strong feelings one way or the other about it, but, uh, yeah, so I was IP on the Pioneer and, uh, I did a deployment to Iraq on the Pioneer, uh, came back went to EP school, which is external pilot. So think, uh, you know, flying an RC aircraft. Uh, I got to do the takeoffs and landings now. Uh, going back to Milton, Florida as a Lance Corporal uh, was a little bit of a different uh, experience as a fleet returnee. You know, you got a deployment under your belt and now you have a maid because you're in BOQ. Uh, once I completed the EP training on the Pioneer, uh, I went to my first, uh, well, I got back two weeks late actually. Uh, for shadow training. So they were doing the shadow transition uh, from Pioneer while I was at EP school. So I was the last uh, Pioneer EP in the Marine Corps. Yeah, and, and that became important for you know a reason that wouldn't become apparent until 10 years later uh, when I got to fly the Hunter as a civilian contractor. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Hunter. I want to say the Hunter is actually, I mean, that's an older system, right? Yeah, yeah. It was uh, one of the first armed UAVs, I think, after Predator. And uh, it I don't know if it was ever an Army program of record, but I know the Army used it a lot. Yeah, so um, I flew the Shadow. I did a deployment to Afghanistan with the Shadow. Uh, I supported uh, the invasion of Marja in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. So I deployed 2009, 2010. Um, and then uh, came back. I helped stand up the first Marine Reserve UAS squadron, BMU-4, and that was down in Yuma, Arizona. And uh, it was down in Yuma that my career started to take kind of a left turn. Rather than, you know, continue down the UAS operator route solely, uh, I was 
afforded the opportunity to, to attend the weapons and tactics instructor course. Okay. And for, you know, people who don't know, uh, the WTI course is like the Marine Corps version of Top Gun, but not like fighter combat. Right. It's uh, more combined arms, air to ground stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I just heard about uh, that recently, uh, I think, in a different discussion. Is, is it that where, maybe I'm getting screwed up, is that where they teach the FAC A's and everything? Uh, yeah, they okay. do. They have the uh, Air Officer Division course uh, at the, the squadron that hosts WTI. Um, that squadron is Marine Aviation Weapons and Tactics Squadron 1, or MOTS 1. Uh, yeah, so they, they teach Air Officers down there. Um the, the you know Hornet Division, they also host uh, MDTC, which is the Marine Division Tactics Course, mm-hmm. and that's how F-18 you know uh, squadrons in the Marine Corps uh, get qualified or certified to uh, become division leads. Okay. But after I uh, became a WTI, I went back to my fleet squadron and uh, I served there as the squadron WTI for. A little bit, and then I got a, an even better opportunity to go back and teach at the weapons school. So I, uh, I basically, oh boy, it, it's kind of a complicated, you know, job description. Uh, you're not only responsible for teaching, you know, the the weapons and tactics for you know your individual community and training new WTIs, because there there has to be like a, a weapons school graduate at each squadron in order to maintain standardization at, at each unit. So it's kind of a self-licking ice cream cone. <laughs> like <laughs> you go back and you have to train more of these individuals that are, that every squadron needs. And so there's always a demand for more, but it does come with like a lot of certification requirements and stuff as well. Okay. So that's without going too deep into that, which could be a whole other, you know, discussion yeah, of the school and everything. But so that's gener- that's where you're generating your, your, inst- uh, I don't say what we would call a standardization pilot. So that's the guy who's yeah. in charge at the unit level of, of the standards and, you know, essentially king of the IPs. Is that kind of the same thing? Yeah, that, that sounds about right. Okay. So let's talk about, uh, you know, you talked about fleet unit. Do you guys launch anything from the ships or is that completely like this is a ground launched system? You know, how does that work? So we didn't original, oh, man, another can yeah. of worms. Got two in a row. <laughs> Um, so the Pioneer used to be able to launch off ship, and the Navy maintained Pioneer squadrons as well uh, on the, the Navy's battleships. Hmm. They would do a rocket-assisted takeoff off the battleship, and then they would recover by the external pilot, the EP, flying the aircraft into a uh, you know a net that you'd erect off the side of the right, ship. Yeah. Uh, but we lost that capability with Shadow and gained the capability to host weapons with a laser designator. But, you know, after Shadow went away, it got replaced by the RQ-21 Blackjack, which, uh, again, we're kind of trading off here. The RQ-21 is like a much smaller system than either the Pioneer or the Shadow. Mm -hmm. Uh, It can go back on ship, and they're employing them at the MU off of uh, LPDs. That is kind of like a Scan Eagle. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. Oh, yeah, a Scan Eagle. Okay. Yeah, the RQ-21 is like the military version of a Scan Eagle. It's a Scan Eagle with a tail, essentially. Uh, it launches off of a you know a tiny little pneumatic launcher, and it recovers using a skyhook. Yeah. 
uh, assembly, which is one of those big cranes that they hoist up with uh, a wire that dangles from. Yeah, because it. it's got like and a little hook uses... on the on the wing or something, right? You're just trying to hook yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. They use they use hooks on the wingtips to to run into this wire, and it'll the wire you know slides down the side of the wing, engages the hook, mm-hmm. and uh, it looks like a flying yard sale. Yeah, yeah, we had those in Afghanistan. Um, I remember we we would watch them land or you know get captured. I guess you could say. Yeah, land is a really generous right, term. Yeah. And I think, I, I, you know, I'm thinking back many years, but did they come apart when they hit, or was that just something had gone wrong? I felt like they were almost made yeah. to, to sort of come apart to, like, help kind of break up the, the sudden impact of, you know, just going from, you know, I don't know, 60 knots. Yeah, I think they have um, some, some components that are designed to shear, right. So to, to save the aircraft, but if it comes apart, it's a, it's it's not uh, intended for at least the Scan Eagle okay. Blackjack family of systems. Okay. Uh, now, one of the other UAS that I was qualified on was the RQ20 Puma, and those ones are are what you you know factor into the Suez family or the small UAS family. Right. Uh, those ones I think are considered Group One UAS, and those ones they they were designed to come apart at the wings when you landed them because uh, the landing was literally you press two buttons on the controller and it stalls itself and just drops out of the sky like basically directly underneath where it was flying previously mm-hmm. and, it, and it breaks apart you grab it you pack it up and you go yeah because a puma is more like a raven where it's a tan launch that's smaller you know that's at the, the squad yeah, yeah. tune you, level you, i guess you, you chuck one like a javelin yeah. and and yeah. yeah okay yeah so and i don't think a lot of people understand um just the diversity that there is of, of UAS and, and you've covered a lot of them just through your own career. But yeah, it seemed like every time I deployed, there was a new, a new thing, you know, and it's like, Oh, we've never seen that one before. And yeah. Um, Emphasize on the diversity thing because it really is an entire ecosystem. Uh, I, I even got the opportunity while I was at Mots to uh, take a couple of trips up to Creech. Mm-hmm. I got to do some of the Reaper Sims up there and yeah, it, I, I've, I've got, a little bit of experience, I think, in the entire breadth of the UAS, you know, ecosystem. Yeah. Um, just enough to be dangerous. Like, I, I don't claim to know <laughs> a whole lot about MQ-9s and stuff, which the Marine Corps has just recently purchased. Oh, really? Which is kind of cool. Yeah, I didn't know that. But, yeah, I think they bought uh, three recently. Huh. Yeah, one of the squadrons is now an MQ-9 squadron. So the only real experience I have with UAS, other than dodging them, uh, in the air, because I I want to <laughs> say I did have a hunter come relatively close to me in Afghanistan. Um, fun, funny funny story. I had an Apache come relatively close hey. to, to my aircraft. <laughs> uh, Imagine that. In, a, in this most recent deployment as a contractor. Huh. Yeah. Well, he he may have done it on purpose. Did he Did he look yeah, confused? Nah. No, he was okay. <laughs> it, it was it was quite confusing. Um. Uh, I, I, if I recall correctly, Tower gave him a, a left turn instruction, uh, and, and he made a right and. Uh, that left turn instruction was for a reason because there was a hunter in the pattern. Uh-huh. Well, you know, funny story, uh, Barrett and I, I, I want to say it was him. We were flying, uh, in Afghanistan. I, he was giving me a check ride, I think for my annual proficiency. And we, we did a instrument approach. In fact, it had to be him because the only IOPs I flew with was him and another guy. And the other guy wasn't an instrument guy. So we did an instrument approach and, uh, there was a, a predator in front of us and they did, they, they missed the landing and they did a missed approach and we always did a missed approach after we shot a shot an approach just to, for practice. And uh, yeah. so 
were behind this predator in the traffic pattern. And I can't remember if I, it was, it sounds like something I would come up with. Um, and I was like, Oh, let's, let's get close to it. So we pulled up alongside this, this predator pretty much right on a wing. And I, I kicked my, I must not have had my camera with me cause I, I know I would have taken a picture, but, uh, but yeah. Um, and interestingly enough, you, you talked about Creech. I, I got to go to Creech too. Um, I was in Las Vegas, which was real tough, but I was, I was teaching. I was doing a, a oh, mobile. Yeah. yeah. I, I went there a couple of times, uh, teaching, uh, thank God for the national guard that's there. But, um, but the second time that I went out there to teach this course and we were doing kind of air ground operations training and I, and I reached out to, to Creech and said, Hey, you know, we're doing this army course, but it'd be super cool. You know, if you guys had some guys that you could send to the course as well and, and they said, well, you know, we're really busy with the op tempo and stuff, but we'll see what we can do. So they ended up sending a, an MQ-9 and an MQ-1 guy. And they were both, uh, you know, quote-unquote regular pilots. And one was a, a B-1 guy and the other was a B-52 guy. But, uh, yeah, they took me out to Creech to show me around. And, you know, you got in a simulator. I got in the real one. They had an MQ-1 over Creech doing some training. And I went into the little module, you know. And the guy that was the the pilot was a uh, was a Blackhawk or a uh, what do they call it? a Pavehawk pilot, and uh, you know he was like I can't let you fly it because it's it's like illegal. He's like but you can get in the <laughs> he's like you can get in the sensor operator seat and move stuff around. So, so okay. yeah, so that was pretty neat. And then you know just to kind of go to your point, you you talked about uh, what did you call it in internal and external. Yeah, internal pilots and external pilots, yeah. or uh, they they later changed it to like. Uh, AVOs, which is air vehicle operator, and uh, POs for payload operator. Okay, so uh, yeah, expand on that. Like, what does what does that break that down? What do those actually mean? Uh, just a lot of different acronyms over the years. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. like UA, UAS started out, I would say, way back in the day as like RPV. Right. Yeah. So it was a remotely piloted vehicle, and, and you had these things in RPV companies. Mm-hmm. You know, that turned into UAV, which was the unmanned aerial vehicle. And uh, that later, you know, once they realized that the UAV didn't describe just the aircraft, but all the associated ground support equipment, mm. it became UAS, which was the unmanned aircraft system. Right. Because there's a bit of baggage that comes with these systems. Yeah, yeah. more Some more than others. Uh, you know, obviously not a lot of baggage comes with the Puma. Right. But if you try to set up a, you know, an MQ-9 launch recovery element, you know, in some country somewhere, uh, it's going to have a, a substantially larger footprint yeah. uh, compared to the alternative. Yeah, because as, as you, you kind of look at these different systems in total, you know, like you said, a Puma slash a Raven, you know, is really meant for that squad platoon level to look past the next hill, you know, see what's around yeah, the corner there. type stuff, even though... In my experience, they don't use them that way. You know, they use them. I always joke they're a baby predator. You know, they put it up. It's got a ninety-minute flight time. <laughs> by God, it's gonna be up for ninety minutes. You know, and it's not really what it's yeah. meant to do. But uh, you know, when I was in a an Apache squadron and we had shadow platoons, you know, those were my largest platoons. I want to say uh, certainly at the line unit level because they had so many vehicles. They had the ground control station and support. And they had the trailers to actually tow the things around. I think we had four of them per platoon. Uh, so yeah, they had a, b- a bit of a tail. Yeah, and if you could believe it, it was a smaller tail than uh, RQ2 had, which is the the pioneer. Really? Yeah. Um, I mean, that was one of the big selling points with Shadow was that it was expeditionary, uh-huh. and apparently the Pioneer was was not considered that, uh, despite the fact that Pioneers, you know, supported the entire push, you know, OIF one, 
uh, they were, you know, leapfrogging aircraft, you know, just launching off the sides of roads. Right. Uh, Shadow was considered the the expeditionary system, and uh, it, it's kind of a, a thread that runs through the Marine Corps that, you know, if if it says expeditionary in the name, we we want it. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah, I want to say the Shadow Platoon had like like 10 or 13 vehicles is the number that keeps popping in my head you know and we had i think we had three platoons you know in the in the squadron so yeah it was quite a bit of tail and then of course with things like the 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 predator and then the reaper and some of those systems i mean it's it's not just a tail at location but then then you've got the stuff at home right so you know, I know things right. like the Reaper and the Predator. They they have a they have guys forward who are responsible for the aircraft, taking care of it, launching it, and flying it. I think the way they described it is they're they're the guys that take off and land. You know, and they get it up to a yeah. certain altitude. Then it makes link with the people back home, and then the guys at Creature, you know, different places are are flying them around. Yeah, I, I might have my acronyms out of date, but I, the the launch and recovery sites for those guys, uh, at least while I was in, were referred to as LREs, and you'd have those, you know, in forward. Uh, locations they'd be crewed by it was considered a pretty sweet deal uh from what i understand to to go deploy on an lre crew um not only for the experience but uh the opportunities that it provided after you later got out yeah because they also do lre operations as contractors and and sure that's apparently a pretty desirable uh gig to to be a part of um and then you have, you know, they would take the aircraft off. They're responsible for routing it into theater, and uh, they'd hand it off at some point to a mission crew. That you know, you've got pilots back in Creech or Cannon Air Force Base, uh, basically on shift crews mm-hmm. that are doing, you know, eight-hour rotations, ten-hour rotations, what, whatever it is, um, around the clock. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting, and I and I actually went over to talk to those guys when I was in Afghanistan because I wanted to see like what you know what can we leverage with these dudes and and they were describing it that to really say that they had you know typically a mission window was you know x amount of hours but they may have some extra fuel on the backside and they were like we can control it within like 100 miles so they could still do all of the things that could be you know replicated back home and so you did have this kind of opportunity that you could, you know, if you made friends with these guys, you might be able to get some work out of them as well, which was interesting. Yeah, and and they'd be able to do it a little better too, I imagine. Um, yeah, because they're right there. So one of the one of the yeah one of the considerations is that uh, the people in direct line of sight with the aircraft uh, don't have to deal with the signal needing to get bounced across to the other side of the world and back. So uh, there's something they call KU delay. Uh, you know, KU just describing the frequency, mm-hmm. uh, but there is a, a considerable latency involved with sending basically the response time you have um, between what the aircraft is actually doing and what you're commanding back in Nevada. Yeah, yeah, I'd ask them about that too because they they described that when I was in the the operator seat moving the the sensor around and stuff. Because I asked that question, I was like, "Well, how do you shoot stuff? Like, if there's this." this delay and uh and they were like well that's why we really don't you know typically shoot at things that are moving you know we'll we'll shoot stationary targets he's like or if it's you know it's something on a highway or you know it's it's moving at a at a at at the consistent rate in a consistent direction then then you might be able to but yeah i never really thought yeah not not to get not to get too into like specific ttps but but yeah you can imagine especially since you know the audience here is mostly dcs like what would happen? How would you feel? How would you try to get around? 
um, every single input you have into the you know, into the simulator. Yeah. Um, not seeing the results of that input until two or three seconds later. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 crazy. Uh, yeah. Definitely, definitely takes something to get used to. Um, now, I, I, and we can kind of segue into because some people maybe listening to this say, "Well, this is this is a helicopter show," and and it's not right. Uh, it's going to be a little bit of everything, but uh, UAS and helicopters, particularly in the past couple of years, have have started to to merge in a lot of ways. Um, I don't know how much time, how much time you've spent in that with the, the manned on man teaming and, and sharing of information and stuff. Yeah, I would say most of my time okay. actually, uh, kind of, not, not to get too into the, the differences between like the Marine Corps and army UAS operations, but, um, we, at least there was a concerted effort when I was at the weapons school, we, we tried not to operate kind of on the line system where we're just going to fly our line yeah. and do re blanket reconnaissance for ever. Um, I would say a, a, a lot of my hours spent at the weapons school were doing the kinds of things that the army would describe as mum tea or man. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ho hosting weapons, calling for fire, um, RISTA, which is reconnaissance surveillance and target acquisition right. and all the, you know, techniques, there's a, a spectrum of techniques uh, in between for finding things on the ground, things in the air. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and I think we were talking about this uh, on the Discord the other day. Somebody was asking questions about, uh, you know, they didn't say it, but essentially they were talking about like rover feeds and, and things yeah. of that nature. And, and that's kind of the same thing. So, you know, a rover feed being, uh, I think the rover is the actual system that like a JTAC or somebody on the ground would have, like the ground station. And that they would get fed from from all kinds of systems, you know, lanterns and sniper pods and all that stuff, or they could feed it in from, I assume, UAS as well. Yeah, and at our units, we tried to use uh, so you know as part of the shadow package. Uh, I guess when you you know when you go on the internet and you order a shadow system, mm -hmm. you get these things called OSRVTs, which were the one system remote video terminals, mm -hmm. and they're basically like rovers, but they're a little bit ex uh, less expeditionary. You have to, you know, plug these things in, and they're they're these big tripod-mounted masts, and uh, you know they come in a couple of pelican cases. But we would actually use ours at the squadron to tap into the feeds getting pushed by, you know, hornets or harriers or you know what other air, uh, cobras, you know, any aircraft that we could pick up in the AO, we would try to with our organic rover systems. Right. And then for your UAS, for the for, for most of the ones that you've mentioned, it, it did have the capability of the same thing where it could pump out and those same Hornets and, and Harriers and stuff could, could get that feed? Right, yeah. Uh, well, so I don't think that the aircraft themselves could receive our feed, okay. but the, the people on the ground certainly could. Okay. Yeah, I guess... Yeah, so we would push a VDL. Okay. Yeah, so that's, I guess, the, the hotness in the Army is we, we could get the feed. So definitely in the Apache... Uh, you could download the feed from the UAS, which is really where the te the, the manned on man teaming comes from. I mean, I guess you could do it via the radio, right? So you're somewhere on a ground station, you're seeing stuff, you're talking to me on the radio, uh, and then yeah. the, and then you get into the the levels of control, right? Which is where the Apache Echo model com comes into play, where you can, you know, I can get the feed, I can I can control the sensor. Um, yeah, there's a there's five. Uh, they call them LOIs. Right. It's the levels of interoperability. LOI one and two has to do with uh, being able to just see the feed. That's what it is. 
LOI three is when you get to control the pod, and then LOI four and five, I believe, are when you start to be able to take control of the aircraft, and then subsequently land and uh, take off the aircraft. Okay. Yeah, I want to say I remember it was like you said, and it was one and two sounds very similar. But the difference was there was some metadata that I think came through. So it was like LOI one, you you pretty much just got the video, and in LOI two, you got you know video plus uh, like grid yeah grids and altitudes and a whole bunch of stuff like that. And then, then like you said, yeah, like, something like that. Yeah, we we didn't do a whole lot of the uh, LOI stuff mm-hmm. um, between units. Uh, we operated our uh, we operated our shadows in the cast construct, mm-hmm. so. If we were doing anything like correlating with cobras or something like that, uh, we would be doing that, you know, over the tad and uh, potentially doing like sparkle handoffs and, you know, other more, I think, basic ways of, of getting it done than handing them like LOI two or three. Yeah. And and the tad, you said the tad this is a tactical air direction. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think when you get into the <laughs> it's kind of age old for the military right we we come up with these capabilities but then we're very reluctant to use them um you yeah. know, it's like well what do you mean you want me to hand off control of this multi bajillion dollar unmanned aircraft to this other guy who's in another aircraft it's like well, well then why would you create the system uh if if you're not interested in doing it but yeah i think it's i don't know anyone who ever had LOI 3 or 4 level control of anything well one of the one of the misconceptions too is that if you you know know how to use the pod on an aircraft you you know how to use the pod on any other aircraft but you know we have a lot of white space in our training time that is spent uh actually training the finer details and how to look for things yeah. and how to you know acquire targets and that kind of thing and and so i would say that there's definitely some merit to wanting just to just hand control the pod off to somebody who sees what they're already looking at. Yeah. But there is also merit, I would say, in letting the people who are trained to operate those systems operate the system. Sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, to be honest, I don't, I don't know that I find much value in the idea of I'm sitting in a cockpit and I'm using your sensor. I mean, I, cause you're right. Then it's like, well, what are you doing back there? I'm, I'm already doing a bunch of work and now I got to do your job too. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and I never thought of it in those terms either. It's like, well, what am I using it for? I'm already looking at the thing. Um, you know, and, and I'm sure there's different situations like, okay, well, I think they're over there. Kind of like what we just talked about with the Raven and the Puma. Like I want the ability to yeah. see on the other side of that building without exposing myself, but I could also just call you and, you know, there's different ways to, to hand those things off. But but yeah, so let's talk mm-hmm. about. Uh, I would say there's a time and a place. Right, yeah. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park 
Um, so let's talk about uh, armed. So I, I guess we. What did you say you, you flew the most? Shadow was that kind of more of your. Yeah, shadow. Okay. And those are those can be armed, right? Uh, there were some tests done uh, down at YPG actually for arming them with uh, a couple of different small payloads uh, like uh, Raytheon's Pyros missile mm -hmm. or uh, Viper strikes, but we never actually saw those in the fleet despite spending something like seventy million dollars on trying to weaponize it. Oh, yeah, I wouldn't say we got briefed on some capabilities before we left, and we never we never saw it either. So, so which ones did you, did you deal with any that were armed? Um, so, no. Uh, you know, the the short answer is no. I I never flew an aircraft that had the bombs on yeah. it. Um, our shtick was kind of that when we launched a shadow, you know, into a cast environment, we were armed with every piece of ordnance that. Uh, any other aircraft was bringing right. because we had the capability to host for those weapons. Right. Yeah, you're the endurance. You're the ability to to find targets and and prevent the guys who do have the ammo from one wasting a lot of time on the target overhead or two taking shots that they normally wouldn't need to. Uh, right. A good day for us was already having a catalog of targets that we knew existed. And being able to allow the, the pilots of those armed manned aircraft uh, to essentially serve as bomb trucks, uh, they'd check in, they would, you know, rifle or, you know, pickle off all their weapons, and then they'd go home with plenty of gas to spare to, to get more bombs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which kind of leads into, you know, why I wanted to have this discussion with you, kind of the timeliness of it. And we were talking, uh, I guess, about a week ago. You know, there were these numbers that came out, and I don't remember the numbers, and I don't have it handy. And I, I think you and I agree to some extent. It's probably a little bit of overestimation, but 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 you were saying you you, you could also believe it. Talking about the, the Armenian Azerbaijan situation, and I guess I guess some report came out saying you know these are all the uh, UAS armed UAS kills in in that sort of border conflict that's going on. Um, yeah, I I mean, just talk about like that, like like in that environment, because I think we're we're very used to UAS operating in the coin environment where there's, you know, I, I've seen the UAS overhead. There's nothing anyone can do about it. You know, there's no one, no one's going to engage it with a rifle or a machine gun. It's too high. Um, I suspect for most of them, they're they're probably too small to to engage with some sort of man pad. I mean, you know, I'm just guessing from heat signature and things yeah, like that. Yeah, I mean, it depends on the aircraft. Um, just as an example, uh, in in very recent times, you know, over Yemen, uh, the Air Force has lost a couple MQ-9s to some jerry-rigged uh, either man-pad systems sure. or like systems that that appear at face value to be like somebody strapped an AIM-9 to uh, <laughs> you know a piece of framework and then launched it. Yeah. Um, but those are airplanes, so though. I mean, an MQ-9 and an MQ, you know what I mean? Like, I <laughs> yeah, stood yeah. next to one, and I'm exactly. like, this is this is a Cessna. You know, it's a, it's an airplane. Yeah, like, I, if I can walk under the under the wing without having to right. dump, then... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, the smaller aircraft, uh, obviously, you're dealing with reduced heat signatures. You're dealing with just a reduced ability to visually identify them, you know, day or night. Uh, they, they aren't as big, so they are harder to see. Um or they're employing from an altitude that is just difficult to see sure. them from. Yeah, I want to say the shadows, you know, were typically around the four to 6,000 mark, but they're loud as hell. I mean, that's a oh, lawnmower yeah. and, in the sky. And, you know it's there. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And actually kind of an interesting segue to that point. Um, we, we knew it like, yeah. uh, leading up to Marja, we specifically flew low altitude missions over the city at night in order to make sure that the Taliban stayed awake. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's a good point. You, if you know a capability, even if, it, if it, you think it's a, you know, a weakness, kind of use it as a strength. Them, if nothing exactly. else, get them used to hearing the noise so much that it's right. almost, they don't think about it as much. Um, yeah, but, uh, the other factor that I think a lot of people don't consider is that there is the human element to like an IADS threat or a, you know, a surface to air threat. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the footage that you see of, you know, aircraft, unmanned aircraft dropping bombs on, you know, double digit SAM systems and that kind of thing, you're seeing the human element at work and some of the, the exploitable pitfalls <laughs> to it. Meaning, meaning what, like as far as like probably, Counting out, oh, counting out paper, that UAV yeah. and not thinking it's a threat. Yeah. yeah, on paper, you know, a lot of these systems have the capability to to shoot down, you know, birds if they so desire right. to. But, <laughs> That's but being able to identify a UAS as, uh, you know, a UAS and not a bird, hmm. um, being able to, you know, track it. The the question, you know, the very question of whether you, you should waste a missile on one. Um, there's a lot of room for uh, mistakes to be made. Sure. Yeah, and I think too the way that the the systems are developing over time, uh, you know, just like we talked about the shadow, uh, I've never seen one armed. I know it's possible, it's feasible, and so you get to this point where, yeah, if you see a UAS, you may think that it's a threat, and you shoot at it, or you may you may not, and and not pay attention to it, and then realize too late that it is armed. Um, and like I said before, you know, whether it's armed is kind of uh, almost like non sequitur mm -hmm. because you are essentially armed if you are flying an unarmed shadow with the artillery battalion you're stationed with or you're armed with the aircraft that has standoff precision guided weapons that you can host for. Right. Yeah, and that's true. And it's funny just to kind of circle back to something you talked about uh I was thinking about uh, when you were talking about launching them from the ships, and I, I toured, uh, gosh, what battleship is that in Mobile? Uh, I was just there last summer. And, you know, it's an old World War II era ship, of course, and it's got these launchers on the back where, you know, they had like a little biplane, you know, and a guy would go in it, and he was the spotter for the ship. And, and I was kind of thinking yeah. about it. But, but you're right, it's, it's expanding on that idea of you're just extending the eyes of whatever capability, whether it's artillery you know, rockets, um, rocket or tube artillery, or, or just having something that where the jet guy is not having to find his own targets. He's just, like you said, showing up. Yep. I'm tracking the spot and shooting. Artillery particularly is really where a lot of these systems were born out sure. of. Um, uh, one of the, one of the squadrons I helped stand up VMU four, like on the patch, we, we, we actually reactivated an old world war two squadron. Mm -hmm that had flown over Iwo Jima. Uh, back then, they were flying, I think it was L4 grasshoppers. Hmm. But the the kind of tradition and the mission of a lot of those old, you know, forward observer or artillery, you know, spotter planes, like we, we in the UAS community have kind of subsumed that mission. So when we talk about control of these systems, you know, we've, we've talked about there, there's guys on the ground, there's there's uh, essentially satellite uplinks, like I said, the, the KU bands and things like that. Um, you know, I guess the next corner that's 
you know being turned as is autonomous systems, right? So pre-programmed or I, I don't know, maybe even some sort of reactionary logic that, you know, if and then type situations. Is that, you know, how far along the line do you think that is? Is that pretty far out or, you know, are we there? I, I know uh, we're definitely not there, um, it, but it also depends on the mission. Uh, there are some missions where simply being airborne, you know, and, and flying orbits all day, is all you have to do. Like when you get into different kinds of collections, um, there are some missions where you'd be flying the aircraft manually the entire time because you're following, you know, a convoy or something mm. and you're providing overwatch. Um, I, I would say we're not quite at the level where you can autonomously follow a convoy. Right. There are certainly tools that are, that are, you know, in some aircraft that make it easier to do so like camera guide logic, for example, where you only need a sensor operator pointing at the ground and the aircraft will maintain position in the sky relative to that position on the ground. Mm, okay. Yeah. 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 It makes the, the operator's job easier, but I, I would say that it's, it's not like autonomously, you know, flying a mission with no human input. Yeah. Cause I guess the, the things it, I've heard, you know, people talk about and I, I agree with this, you know, as we, as we, develop lots of these things we also develop gps jamming and and different things that you know i've seen shadows take off and lose link and it's gone you know like it's there's it's just no recovering yeah um um and we're, we're talking an ecosystem like there are so many little you know options that you have depending on the aircraft uh even you know we're talking about lost link scenarios um like pioneer would not necessarily lose the aircraft if it lost link because there was another option uh to to maintain link with the aircraft Mm. um same with gps like you can actually fly shadow potentially in a gps denied environment it just took more head work uh because you needed to be able to figure out where you were over the sky using just like the relative angle of your dish to the aircraft rather than what the aircraft was reporting its position at um yeah, it, those are like less socialized, I think, sure. techniques. But um, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like we're talking about recovery methods. If Shadow can't recover via the one method it has to recover, all you really have left is to pop the chute. Hmm. Okay. Hunter, on the other hand, if it's automated, you know, landing mode fails, uh, you you don't immediately lose the aircraft. You have the manual backup. Okay. Yeah. So it's kind of depending on the size is is it's going to have different ways to to come back. And the shadow that I'm thinking of, you know, it what we think happened is that there was it wasn't just a lost link, it was a a some sort of catastrophic failure inside the system. Cuz I think, correct me if I'm wrong, most of the systems if you lose link, it 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 has some some logic in it to do certain things. And I think the guys were telling me that what, you know, if it just lost link, it would circle uh, its last waypoint, I think, or you know, something until it got to a certain point of gas, and then it would return to its launch site yeah, and try to yeah. auto land. Essentially, you could set up loiters yeah. and you could set up uh, return home plans, yeah. and that's fairly that's a fairly common thread through all UAS now. Mm-hmm. Um, to like like a come home logic, yeah. uh, but sometimes yeah, you do have those catastrophic systems uh, failures. Yeah typically involving like the brain of the aircraft. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in the shadows case, that was like the ACE box. Um, if something 
fails in there, then you've basically ate the cost of that aircraft, which admittedly is not that expensive. Comparatively, right, exactly, it's not. You know, I mean, you say, well, it's a million dollars. Like, yeah, okay, that's that's really not that much money when you get into aviation. Yeah, yeah. So, like, if if you lost, um, that, that's actually one of the reasons they got rid of, of EPs in a lot of communities, the external pilots, uh, because the cost to maintain proficiency uh, was actually more, you know, the cost to train and maintain proficiency for an entire occupational specialty of individuals who just take off and recover, sure. um, that that actually cost more than occasionally losing an aircraft <laughs> because of a failure, right. you know, like... <laughs> Which is wild to think about, but I mean that makes a lot of sense because it's not a lot of money, and there's no really no lives at risk. I mean, I guess unless it right. crashed on right. a house or something, but uh, but yeah, no, it's interesting. Yeah, so so eventually it kind of became the status quo that uh, it, it's okay to lose one of these things every once in a while. Obviously, you want to reduce it as much as you can, but. Um, you're not dealing with the same levels of, of quality assurance, I'd say, and, and the same mishap levels as if a manned aircraft, you know, went, went in. Right, absolutely. So uh, kind of on that thread of, of <laughs> catastrophic, uh, as we see the proliferation of just more and more systems, um, you know, th there's there's no less demand for manned aircraft right now, particularly like in a combat theater. Uh, but there's certainly a higher and higher demand for for unmanned systems. You know, it's getting pretty congested airspace. Yeah, yeah, that's a uh, that's absolutely true. Um, and a lot of people subscribe to the the big sky little bullet <laughs> or the big sky little plane theory. Yeah. Um, I, I personally don't because I have seen close calls like we talked about before with like Apaches in the pattern. Um, I've seen instances like actual mishaps. Uh, like the one that happened in, um, oh, I can't remember the name now, but there was a C-130 that overtook a shadow um, in Afghanistan. Shir Shirani? Does that, that sound right? Sounds. Yeah. Shir Shirana? Something like mm -hmm. that? Um, yeah, so uh, a C-130 basically took out a shadow uh, on final hmm. right between, yeah, this, I think the shadow yeah, impacted right between. Yeah, I do vaguely remember that now. Yeah. Like one or two engines or something like that. Hmm. Yeah, because you don't see. I mean, even talking about like the Hunter and the Shadow. I mean, they're you know they're decent sized aircraft, uh, but but up in the sky, I mean, it's it's too late when you see them. You know. Yeah, um, yeah, and, and at least that's what the C one thirty crews reported. Sure. Well, because if what you're describing, if they're if they're coming straight on it, um, there there's there's nothing. There's no motion, right? It's just something that's small. And then it suddenly got bigger, and then they ran into it. You know, it'd be different maybe if yeah, it was, yeah. a, you know, a beam them or something like that. So yeah, I can I can totally see that. Um, yeah. So the need to deconflict your airspace uh, is definitely ever present, um, and it kind of gets into the unique capabilities of different sized aircraft to do so, because a lot of your larger aircraft are going to have to fly higher out of necessity, either because they don't want to get shot at or because they're optimized for that altitude right. band, you know, performance, that kind of thing. Um, the mid-tier UAVs that, that, you know, I flew in my career, uh, they occupied a, a lower altitude band that didn't really get in the way of anybody except Ospreys until very recently. Um, so having a lot of those tactical UAS uh, w was kind of less of an issue. Because like you said, they operated like four to 6,000 feet AGL, and you don't see a lot of anybody else operating at those altitudes. Yeah. 
but then you've got the smalls that are operating, you know, a couple hundred feet off the ground, um, which are, I mean, you, you know better than I do that there are other platforms out there that fly that low. Yeah, I mean, that's the scariest environment imaginable is the, the Raven Puma type situation. Um, in fact, to the point that, you know, when we would check in, if the ground unit said, you know, we have a Raven up, it'd be like, well, okay, land it. You know, like, we're not coming until you do. You know, and, and our mentality yeah. being was like, okay, that flies very low and looks for stuff. So do I. So, you know. There, yeah, who's not looking outside the window? Yeah, there's <laughs> not enough room in this town for both of us. So so land your little, yeah. you know, rinky-dink and, and we'll come do that job. And then when we leave, you can launch it again. But, um, I mean, there absolutely were cases of Kiowa's. Uh, I know of one case where Kiowa got hit in a tail boom with, with a raven. You know, and I just destroyed the raven, yeah. essentially. But. I think I'm pretty sure a Scandigal hit a Blackhawk in Bagram. Oh yeah, or not Bagram, uh, Bastion. Oh wow, yeah, that sounds right. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I've had a friend where a, a shadow flew between him and his wingman one time. You know, just just these things yeah. happen. Um, and and so I agree with you that <laughs> the idea of the the big sky little bullet, I, I'm not a subscriber to that at all. Um, but you're right, the, those mid tiers, you know, that is kind of that sweet spot of that four to six. K that that really no one that I can think of is hanging out in, you know. If you're a, if you're a fast guy, you're you're definitely going to be higher than that. Um, and yeah. If you're a rotoring guy, you're probably going to be a lot lower than that. So so there is that sweet spot. And so when you're building that stack of 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 aircraft, and you know, I, I'm guessing you guys probably used a lot of Rosses as well. Uh, we used uh, ACAs. Okay. So you you recently had a YouTube video about uh, you know all the the best uh, you know airspace coordination measures. And I, I definitely agree with a lot of them. Uh, if you don't have the airspace coordination measures in place, then uh, you're, you're asking for trouble. Yeah. Um, but we would typically either do a hasty ACA or we'd have some pre-planned uh, pre ACAs. Um, we like to put them over where the helicopters are flying yeah. because it puts us in a prime position to be able to host their weapons for them. Um, but, but yeah, uh, just got to make sure that you are you know laterally, vertically, or time-based separated from other aircraft. Right. And and to just to define for anyone who doesn't know, so we're talking about airspace coordination measures, so a RAS, a restricted operating zone, basically a, a, a portion of airspace that uh, you're not essentially allowed to enter without permission. You know, So I, I equate it to airspace around an airport, even though it's not really a good equation, but it's the best I can come up with for maybe a general aviation guy is you, know, you can't enter Class B airspace without permission. Um, yeah, you can, but there's no magic force field to keep you out, but you're not supposed to. So the same thing with a ROS is, you know, you, you, thou shall not pass without permission. And then an ACA is, is really that three-dimensional block in space where you should be, you know, re I think the, the, the wording in the book is reasonably assured uh, to not be shot down by friendly fire, essentially. Um, so that's a box yeah. where, you know, we've already calculated where the artillery is going to shoot. So where can we put aircraft and, and sort of get them out of the way, but allow them the freedom maneuver to do stuff. Um, and so, yeah, so what you're saying is we're going to have an ACA an airspace coordination area where we have aircraft operating, and then we're going to have probably another one where the UA the UAS is going to be operating in a in a way that they can support one another. So that UAS can can shoot over the shoulder or, or whatever uh, for the helicopter to be able to to spot their laser and things like that. Right. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, we'd we'd like to put our ACAs and stuff over the like BPs, for example, sure. which are the battle positions. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, that makes sense. Yeah, I want to say usually I th maybe it's an army thing. I feel like we always put them in Rosas. I'd never thought about putting them in an ACA, 
but I, I mean, I guess it, it doesn't matter at the end of the day, it's all kind of the same, same thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, mean, I see that a lot too, where, you know, a lot of times we'll be saying the same thing, but we'll just be using two different words for yeah. it. Um, but we, we mean the same thing. Yeah. Well, it, it, the results matter. And I mean, there's so many airspace coordination measures. It's there, there's more than probably more than we need, <laughs> Put it that way. <laughs> which yeah. is why I say there's like the three, you know, if you can, if you can get away with the three, you're, you're probably okay. But, uh, there, there are a ton. Okay. Well, I know we're running out of time. Um, and I, I think in the future we'll probably come back to this conversation and, and kind of explain some some different ways. You know, we talked about uh, the systems themselves and how they sort of generally operate. And, and there is a lot of sensitivity to, to some of this stuff. So it's hard to go, you know, in depth uh, because you, you don't want to get into the technical side, but you also don't want to get into the, the tactics and, and procedure side of things. But I think most people can kind of generally understand that, you know, it's essentially an airplane, you know, I mean, it's just a different size and in some cases as large, I mean, God, those, those global Hawks, I mean, you've seen those, I'm sure. I mean, that's, that's an airplane, if nothing else, it's huge. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, but we are getting into much more miniaturized, you know, I mean, God, I've seen, you know, these handheld systems that, you know, Joe carries in his pocket and can throw up and, you know, look around a corner and things like that. But, um, yeah, or even loitering munitions, which is kind of the other facet of the uh, the Armenian-Azerbaijan uh, conflict, is that you've got, and the U.S. employs some of these systems too, like the, the switchblade, which is essentially a, a, a drone with a warhead on it that you can control down to the target. Oh, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, it, I, I think it's anything that you can imagine at this point with the, with this stuff and these capabilities and it's so funny i remember the first time i saw a, a radio controlled airplane i think i was with my wife at bed bath and beyond of all things and there was a and it was a radio controlled airplane for some reason they were selling there and it had a camera in it and this was 2003 time frame and I remember looking at it and being like, why didn't I think of that? Like, that's genius. You know, <laughs> like, it just never occurred to me to do something like that. And, and I mean, hell, we already had things like that. I just didn't know about it or pay attention to it. But, but yeah, it's a huge world. And, and, and as you alluded to earlier, there's, there's a lot of money for guys, you know, who know how to use it. Um, I saw that happen a lot where guys, you know, they had experience as a UAS guy. And next thing you know, they're putting on the contracting uniform and making three times as much as they were before and doing basically the same job, just a lot less of the BS to put up with. Yeah. And, and you're probably not alone when you're, when you're talking about like looking at a, an aircraft with a camera on it and thinking like, why didn't I think of that? But this has been a technique that like dates back to the early 1900s. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's insane. Like if you look up pigeon photography, that was like the first UAS. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> it would strap, you know, 35, 38 millimeter cameras to pigeons and then, you know, take military photographs. <laughs> it's crazy what we did with pigeons. Like I, I was yeah, just yeah. reading something about World War One and, and uh, uh, airplanes kind of related, I guess, spotters um, in airplanes, you know, and they didn't have radios, but they would have sometimes in some cases pigeons that they would put notes on the pigeons. I like, I can't even wrap my head around how they would do that. You know, <laughs> just release a pigeon. Yeah, we need an episode on pigeon photography. Yeah. They're at 80 miles an hour in the sky and they throw a pigeon out the window <laughs> and, and hope he goes to the right guy to tell him, Hey, you got bad guys in front of you or something. Uh, it's just incredible. But, um, yeah, there's no end in sight. Yeah, or even before that, balloons. Yeah. yeah and then balloons and stuff. So, um, yeah, it's it's 
it's definitely an interesting a growth market, if you will. Um, and then and then you start getting into the the what are the Manning optional aircraft, right? I mean, I've I've seen helicopters yeah. where it it can have a pilot, but it doesn't need one. Yeah, we we actually employed one, uh, KMAX. Yeah, that's right. The Marines had one. They were using them. Yeah, that that's a whole yeah, other discussion. For, for logistics. Yeah. So. Okay. Well, no, I appreciate your time and uh, kind of sharing some of your, your expertise with us. And, and uh, I, I think as we kind of move forward in this this program and, and hopefully more people will, will start watching and, and listening and, and sending us some questions because we've only just scratched the surface on this. And, you know, as you alluded to, there's there's some interesting employment methods when we talk about stacking up aircraft and uh, having UAS and having artillery and, you know, and as you and I have talked about, uh, on the side before, you know, JATS, the joint air attack teams and just combined arms warfare in general. And there's, there's just a huge place for these systems inside that. So that's interesting. Yeah. About. And I, I'd say that's probably where my real bread and butter is. Yeah, no, absolutely. I want to pick your brain on that. And, uh, uh, we're definitely gonna do that in the future. So, but I appreciate you uh, spending some time with me. Yeah, this was fun. Well, that was a very interesting interview, and you know, and it's obvious he has a lot of it, of knowledge and operational experience with UAS systems. And you know, one thing that perked my ears up uh, when I heard uh, him say that uh, he was doing work as a contractor operating these systems, which really goes to show you that the military and civilian sector are not only you know starting to work together, but actually operate together. Uh, you know, these types of systems are becoming more and more privatized and commercialized. And, you know, you had to dodge them while you were performing military operations in the sandbox. Uh, but now uh, we are stand, we're, you know, we're starting to see a lot of stories about civilian aircraft having uh, close calls with UAVs in the commercial airspace as well. You know, the technology for unmanned systems have really started to bleed over into the, you know, non-military applications and, you know, so su- uh, such that the FAA has even started to really uh, struggle and uh, to define the rules for the UAV um, uh, systems operating in the airspace. You know, quadcopters that you can buy for, you know, a thousand bucks can uh, reach very high altitudes and even and even have the same technology to fly away points beyond the visual range of the operator and return home and land without any interaction from the pilot at all. And all this has really started, was really started with, you know, the military application for the UAV, um, you know, first being used for intelligence gathering and, um, and battle space awareness um, uh, to now having the ability to blow up a tank, you know, from, all from a guy who's flying it halfway around the world. I mean, it, it's a good thing to be able to put drones in harm's way instead of people, and everybody, I think, agrees with that. Um, but I think the UAVs, ha- uh, you know, becoming more commercialized is really become, uh, you know, it really becomes more of a concern for military and general aviation. And you know, and I understand the FAA is trying to, you know, force companies uh, in having their drones equipped with uh, uh, equipped with uh, see and avoid technology. Uh, but it's just not there yet. In fact, DJI, um, who's one of the makers of the big quadcopter stuff, uh, is coming out with their own app uh, that will show a drone in your area and tell you who, it, who it's registered to. So new, new rules um, have been designed to limit UAVs uh, in the airspace, and there are penalties for people who break those rules. Yeah, totally. Uh, I worked at the FAA for a little while, and one of the big concerns, you know, this was several years ago, but one of the big concerns was just that, the, the congestion of airspace. And, and one of the things that they explained to me when I kind of asked these questions is, you know, they said, well, let's say the president goes somewhere and we establish a TFR, you know, a temporary flight restriction. Nothing can fly in this, you know, 25, I think it is, you know, roughly nautical mile circle around the spot. Well, how does Farmer John 
who has a small UAV, how does he know that he's inside of a TFR, right? He's just flying a UAV to check his, you know, check his crops or check his cattle or check the fence line, things like that. Well, he's technically in violation of the law. So yeah, you know, that that's a concern, but it's on the individual to know the rules. You know, ignorance of the law is no excuse to break the law. Um, right. So, you know, in fact, now uh, when I pull up my DJI app to fly my drone, it tells me if there's a TFR in place where I'm at or other restrictions in my area. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, you can always just avoid those and just go fly anyway. Yeah. Um, now, there are other ways. There, There's a lot of ways to actually defeat UAS systems and capture them, um, but which we won't talk about much because uh, it's mostly classified. But but uh, these UAV systems are being used by our adversaries all the time. Yeah. Right. Uh, while I was working in the Seattle area a couple of years ago, we had many incursions into our nuclear limited area by UAVs. Um, I, I got a call one night uh, about an incursion uh, by a UAV, in which I figured out was you know what which I I thought was just going to be like a quadcopter or something yeah. that a local was flying around and just kind of drifted too far. Um, and, but when mm-hmm. I got there, I, I asked the sailor, you know, kind of what it looked like, and the sailor was like, "Oh, it was like 16 feet wingspan and no lights." And I was like, whoa, you know, that's that's no quadcopter. Um, so, you know, these, this thing lorded around the nuclear subs for about 10 to 15 minutes, then flew north just uh, above the water, um, up the Hood Canal, and into Canada. So, that you know, that was obviously an intelligence-gathering mission. Um, so, uh, we, you know, we are not the only country at the cutting edge of UAVs, but there are a ton of things that uh, that can be discussed when talking about military UAS sure. systems and um, and their capabilities. Yeah, it's it's a huge uh, discussion. I mean, it, it's funny when we started that interview. He, you know, he kind of assumed that we'd talk for twenty or thirty minutes, and you know, by the time we were done, he's like, "Man, we we've barely scratched the surface." So there's there is so much in that, not just with the UAS as a, as a system, but uh, but all the you know, as you've brought up, all the things that it can do, and just a ton of rabbit holes without even really getting into a lot of the 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 how to and the technical side of things. So I. So I definitely think in the future we could have some more conversations with him about that as we go. You know, I haven't had too much interaction with the UAS systems on the military side other than um, using the intel from them. Um, but I, I remember being shocked at how how large they were when I first saw one. I, I was down in Africa doing some stuff, and uh, they had a couple of Reapers, and my uh, my chew was like 100 yards from uh, from them where they uh, warmed up and, and got loaded up and stuff. And, and they would crank up like every morning and head out before the sunrise, and then they wouldn't return until after the sun set. And I mean, those things are loud. Yeah, like yeah. I mean, like 900 horsepowers or something, and I don't know what they have, but, uh, you know, and I'm watching this thing take off, and I'm like, man, that, that's really strange. There's some dude in Arizona flying that thing. It was just yeah. a really weird feeling. Yeah. I, I've worked with them where I'm actually in Afghanistan talking to the guy who's back in, you know, back in Las Vegas. Yeah, I mean, there was a little bit of a delay, but you know, it, so that was that was actually an interesting story we'll have to tell sometime. But um, yeah, no, it was a great discussion. Uh, appreciate him coming on, and uh, yeah, like I said, I, I think there's a, a ton of other things we could discuss, especially as we get into conversations more about you know air to ground operations because the integration with uh, UAS and and fixed and rotary wing aircraft is is only growing. It's a growth market. So yeah, I, I would be interested to see how um, they start folding these things. Uh, into flight sims like DCS because um, it is becoming a normal military operation to have drones as part of the battle space and work with them in combat operations. Yeah. All right. Well, it's been a great discussion. I appreciate all the listeners out there. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear them. Please send them to the low level hell podcast, gmail.com. Send us whatever questions, whatever topics you think you'd like to hear us uh, talk about. 
Uh, we've got some great interviews lined up. It's really just a matter of timing at this point. Uh, views expressed are those of the guests and crew and do not represent the Department of Defense or any private business. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you guys next time here on the Low Level Hell Podcast. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park.